Hey guys, and welcome back to Gimme the Creeps. We are back with part four of Susan Cox Powell's story. If you haven't listened to the other three parts, I suggest you go back and listen to those. <laughs> I was waiting for you to say something. Oh, <laughs> I was thinking about saying hello, but I'm like, eh, she's, she's got it under control. Aw, you're so sweet. I just wanted to start this one off by thanking each and every one of you. We are still gaining new listeners, and we are very thankful for the new listeners as well. Welcome, and thank you for listening. We know there are other podcasts out there with people who know what they're doing and have a high production value, but you stick with us anyway, and that makes us feel really good. Mm-hmm. We started this and continue to treat this as our fun and relaxing side project where we can share our fascination with true crime and bizarre topics with you all. And it's like a form of therapy when you can find something that you love and make the time to enjoy it. So I think it's something everyone deserves and I'm just happy that we're still here talking about this kinds of stuff together. Mm-hmm. So picking up where we left off with a small recap. On the morning of Monday, December 7th, 2009, a winter storm had been whirring all night. Debbie Caldwell, who hadn't heard from Susan, nor had her boys been dropped off as they usually had been at 6.40 a.m., Debbie Caldwell, while taking some of her kids that she watched to school, she decided to stop by the Powell home. She noticed that there were no tire marks in the fresh snow in addition to none of them answering their cell phones and in addition to Josh's work saying that he didn't show up. He was a no-call, no-show. And then Debbie called Jennifer Graves, the emergency contact that Susan gave. Jennifer Graves, of course, is Josh Powell's sister who was very close with Susan. And as we spoke about before, she was very creeped out by her brother and her dad and noticed their weird habits. So she was all the way Team Susan. Uh, So Jennifer drove over with her mom, Terry. And they already had a bad feeling, so even just on the way there, Terry called 911, and that was around 9.53 a.m., and by 10.02 a.m., the police were there with Jennifer and Terry. Uh, Carbon monoxide was suspected to be the culprit for how eerily quiet the house was, but they also thought that maybe they weren't there all night explaining why there were no marks in the driveway. Apparently, the the snowstorm began around 3 a.m. that night, so they would think that they'd see some from the day before or that morning. Mm -hmm. So the cops were given permission to break a window. One officer entered walking through the eerie silence and whirring fans, and then he went to the front door to unlock it for the other officers, and once they were all inside, they began to search for the family. When they found no one, they made some calls. They made sure they weren't in an accident or in the hospital. All cell phones went straight to voicemail, which worried everyone. Detective Ellis Maxwell was called and when he searched the home, Susan's purse was sitting on the dresser in the bedroom. So that was hint number one that Susan didn't leave by her own decision. Mm -hmm. And her wallet's in there is what Ellis said. He said, her wallet's in there, her ID's in there, her keys are in there. You could tell there's no credit cards missing or anything like that. No cash is missing. She had jewelry in the bathroom in the bedroom. None of that appeared to be missing. So now let's talk about those fans because this area of the home comes up in forensics later. The couch appeared to be what they had cleaned and placed the fans directed towards uh, Mm -hmm. to dry the spot on the couch they cleaned. It grabbed their attention right away, but there was no sign of a struggle. Sure, the house was in a bit of disarray, but that was pretty common for them. 
and Detective Ellis Maxwell started his work as a missing persons case, which is what this was. He pretty much treated it as a missing persons case right away starting that night. He placed the vehicle and the family on the FBI's national crime database in case they crossed state lines out of Utah. Mm-hmm. He spoke with Giovanna when he discovered that she was the last to see them. Something I didn't mention was Susan was going to church every Sunday and Giovanna came over after church that day. So wouldn't that be somewhat of a tag on what day it was for Josh? Right. How could he, yeah, how could he have forgotten? He barely does anything as it is. So when people are leaving and coming, he knows what's going on. He knows what day it is. If she's coming home from church, Right. Uh, then obviously it's Sunday. So Um, It would have been hard for Josh to forget that that day was Sunday. So that's my first thing that I hadn't thought about before. And after going through this so many times, I was like, he would have known it was Sunday. Giovanna then took the time to describe Josh's behavior to Ellis. And it seemed like he was putting on the good husband show for Giovanna. Not that she had known at the time that he was doing that because she hadn't been around them long enough to know that he never touched her or showed affection. Mm Mm-hmm. But on this particular evening, in addition to making them lunch, which I called it dinner last time, but it was kind of like a late lunch that he made the pancakes for. After making them lunch, he even cleaned the kitchen and put a blanket around Susan's shoulders while she sat crocheting with Giovanna and tangling the yarn. But she thought that was just a normal thing for husbands to do, you know, just be sweet and give her a blanket. But so did Susan like not make a face like, what the fuck are you doing? No, she was just like smiley and... She was very fatigued, yeah, exactly, but it, but in her, like, in Susan's mind, I'm sure, I don't know if it struck her as something odd, Mm -hmm. or if she was just trying to take advantage of it, or I'm not sure if she realized, like, having been so suspicious of Josh, why am I feeling sick? Why is he being so nice to me? Why is he, you know, making my friend pancakes? Like, I don't, I don't know. Maybe it was just wishful thinking because she had been on that wishful thinking trip um, considering she wanted another baby and they were starting to be intimate again. Mm -hmm. I have no idea. I don't know. It might have just been her trying to be positive. Uh, So yeah, Giovanna witnessed him being, I guess, his best he'd ever been. Okay, so here's the kicker. Josh wasn't answering his phone So either it was off or he ignored calls that he recognized or maybe there wasn't the the spotty service was the reason why he didn't answer. But when Giovanna's son, Alex, called from his phone, Josh actually answered. And I didn't mention how Giovanna became friends with the family, but her son had babysat for them for a Christmas party that was like the week before. And it was Josh's Christmas party that Susan went to. So they knew each other from church and then her son had watched the boys. She had her son call Josh and Josh answered the phone. So I'm not sure if that was a mistake or not, or who knows what he thought the call was, but for some reason he answered that phone call. But Alex freaked out and hung up and Giovanna was like, what are you doing? Nobody's gotten a hold of him yet. You have to call him back. So he called him back and Josh was like, um, oh, so her son handed her the phone. So Giovanna talked to Josh and he was like, all frazzled like oh hey whatever and she was like he was like I'll be right there or whatever but then he called Jennifer right after she got off the phone with him and she was upset and scared she asked where he'd been and he said at work she said no you're not and he admitted to forgetting that it was Monday till that morning and that he was out camping and was now on the Pony Express trail 
She asked where Susan was, and he said, at work. She said, no, she isn't. And he, he snapped back with, well, I don't know. And she did her best to press down her frustration and backed off a little so that he wasn't scared when he got back because the police were, he had no idea that the police were waiting for him. Mm-hmm. And it was like a thing already. So, so she backed off a little and she just said, well, it's kind of a big thing that Susan wasn't at work. The police are here. They're going to ask you a few questions. Get back as soon as possible. And Jennifer <laughs> comes back and tells the cops that he's on the way. He's taking forever, so Detective Maxwell tries calling him, but he doesn't answer. And Jennifer calls him again and gives the phone to Detective Maxwell. Josh plays it cool, explaining the boys are hungry and not acknowledging Maxwell, saying Susan is not at work, like Josh repeatedly tried to say. And he was trying to incite any kind of worry from Josh, the detective was, about Mm -hmm. his missing wife, but it didn't seem to work. He wasn't worried, like, at all. And Jennifer left and came back once Josh arrived. When he finally rolls up three hours after the phone conversation, Maxwell questions why he wasn't answering, and Josh says he was saving battery because he didn't have a charger. And Maxwell can see in the car that the phone, his phone, is plugged into the car charger. Oh my god. So it's already just like fumble after fumble, but Maxwell, I don't know if this is a smart move or not, I'm not a detective, but he doesn't say anything about like, well, what the fuck is that? You know, I would have been so mad. I would have been like, well, what do you call that? A yeah, I would have. Earthworm? I could never be a detective because oh, no, my ghetto would it. come out. I'd be like, I can tell you're lying, but anyway. Mm-hmm. So Maxwell wanted to question him immediately, and so he's like, let's go to the station right now, like, don't even get out of the car. And Josh insisted on bringing his boys, and he used their presence to his advantage, constantly being distracted by them between questions. So they did. They went straight to the police station after he rolled up to his house and saw the police there. They all went to the police station. He was vague and the opposite of helpful when they were at asking him questions, his answers pretty much just gave them more questions. He would pause and take his time answering and just generalize everything. Um, and his story is as follows. He stuck to the the story that he took the boys on a spontaneous camping trip that night at like midnight. He said Susan stayed home and cell service was spotty. He chose to go to the Pony Express. He turned off his phone to save battery. So those were the basics. But before they left, this was the story. He said Susan woke up around 6.30 p.m. and had hot dogs for dinner and then went back to lay down with Brayden. She napped. He said they actually didn't go sledding. He only took Charlie because Brayden stayed with Susan. So if it was around 6.30, where the fuck did they go whenever Giovanna watched them leave? Yeah, what the fuck? So who knows? Maybe he drove around the corner and then like came back just so it was like an alibi situation. Who knows? Oh, yeah. um, you did say that I- the last time, too. I don't know. Yeah, certain things, either the time is wrong from whoever is saying whatever, or it's like a on-purpose thing. Um, I don't know. He said around 10 p.m., Susan insisted he used the rug doctor to clean the carpet and the couch from the kids making a mess. He said they watched the Santa Claus 3 and she went to bed. It was around 1230 at night and he got ready for their camping trip. He took the boys around 1.30 a.m. and got to their campsite around 4.30 a.m. Simpson Springs campsite. It's freezing and it's dark and Susan was apparently okay with all of it, although Brayden is two and Charlie is four. Um, He woke up at 7 a.m. on Monday realizing it's Monday and um, he just accepted that it was all, his day was screwed up anyway, didn't even try to call work, didn't try to, according to him, this is what he's saying, like I, it was too late to fix anything so they just built a campfire and roasted some marshmallows and drove around a bit. 
Around 2 p.m., they decided to head back. He stopped in Lehigh and got a car wash and paid in cash, but he doesn't remember what car wash. And also, it's in the middle of a freaking snowstorm, so... What the fuck? What the fuck? Yeah. I'm telling you, there's, like, little details here where I'm not sure if it's, like, for a reason or what, but that's what he said, and um, How he assumed- does he not... <laughs> Like he clearly, hear what's coming out of his mouth. Yeah, like how does he? Okay, he clearly did it, but like he planned all of these things. Why the fuck would you not plan what you're gonna say? Like where you were, right? Like oh, what Lord. the fuck is what the fuck that doesn't make any motherfucking Which sense? Which is like it's like how could he have done all this and still have had time to coach his kids? Because we're gonna talk about what Charlie says later, but. You can tell Charlie is really trying not to say much. It's very it's very easy to tell. But um, he assumed Susan was at work, but he had the van, and it was a fucking snowstorm. So how the fuck did she get to work? The detective was like, how did she get to work? And he just said she would have tried to get there. Um, I, on her bike? Or what? Like <laughs> On foot? <laughs> she had an E.T. situation go on, and the bike can just fucking fly or what? Yeah. So... So they asked about their relationship and he said that they had disagreements, but it was a, it was a good marriage. He claimed that she had quite the temper and he was lazy and it upset her. He also mentioned she was mad at him for not going to church and they were seeing a counselor. So he told, he told them the basics and detective Maxwell already kind of knew, knew what was going on. Um, the truth from her friends because he had already spoken to people who knew them and so he knew that they had many problems in their marriage they asked if he knew where her cell phone was because it's off so remember this is still the day of it's still monday december 7th and uh uh, they ask where is her cell phone it's off we can't get we can't uh leave a voicemail or anything and he said he didn't know he stayed calm and monotone the entire interview he allowed them to search the van with a consent form stating that he could stop the search at any time and he could watch. So he sat there supervising them in the driver's seat and just let them search. Um, I would be so I, – I just want to flick in between the eyes just picturing that. Like, like let us search the damn van. Come yeah, on. what the fuck? Get out of here. In the van the day she was discovered to be missing, there was blue tarp in the back on the floor a shovel, a metal rake, a broom, humidifier, a tote with camp equipment, lacking the tent, but there were tent stakes. So was there ever a tent? What? Yeah, it was a it was a thing where when people heard they went camping, they were like, those little boys slept out in the cold or in the van or what? Because they didn't have a tent. But I'm thinking, what if he wrapped her body in the tent? Oh, that is a good point. Because that's a lot of fabric and it's thin and like you can really wrap stuff in it if you had to. So if there are tent stakes in the van, they should have been like, where the fuck is the tent? They should have just asked him like, where's the tent? You didn't sleep in a tent? Who knows? Maybe they did. I don't know. But anyways, he also had a few hand saws, a few generators, camera bag, a box of nitrile, nit- nitrile gloves, and what took the cake was in the center console was her fucking cell phone with the SIM card missing. What the fuck? Mm-hmm. So there, he was like, it was a pink Motorola Razor and Ellis is like, whose phone is this? And, and Josh is pretty much like, oh, I forgot that I had that in my pocket and I was getting phone numbers out of it. 
um, the other day, and I guess I forgot I had it. What but Alice fuck? is like, but you would have had to take it out of your pocket and put it in the console, so like you knew you had the phone. Yeah. Anyway, mistake, mistake by Josh. But then the bigger mistake happens. They did not get a search warrant for the house that night. They let him go home. They said, "We'll see you tomorrow." What? Um, the fuck? So they just gave him that quick little little interview, and the boys are like bouncing around in the background. So he's like, "Okay." They sent him home and told him to come back tomorrow at 9 a.m. without the boys. He even got a wake-up call from Maxwell at 8 a.m. to remind him, like, show up and, you know, get your sister, your sister will watch the boys or whatever. But he didn't answer, and he didn't come in at that time. He just avoided going at that time. So neighbors said he was up at 8 a.m. cleaning out the van, and Jennifer, who was over to help watch the boys because she knew he had to go to the police station, so she's like, what the fuck are you doing? You need to leave. She's watching him, like, frantically clean, and he's like, hey, help me watch the boys while I clean. And she's like, you need to be going to the police station. What are you doing cleaning? And she just watched him do laundry and clean out the van and wipe up stuff here and there. So he finally goes to the station around noon and brought up how he needed his lawyer, and uh, he got one online. So I don't know. He felt like a suspect, and that's the only time he tried to show emotion, saying that he didn't know where she was, but that... That didn't last. His emotionless self came back again, and he didn't say much as usual, but he claimed that she was depressed and suicidal. So he's taking a new a new turn, like, okay, maybe she did go missing, but it's probably because she was depressed. <laughs> Before, it was like, she went to work. She's fine, whatever. But now it's like, oh, well... If she went missing, it's probably by her choice. So they told him his van was going to be searched by forensics this time and his home too. And he gets his Miranda rights read to him twice. He clarifies that uh, he's free to leave and says he wants a few days before they can talk again. And Ellis chuckles out loud and is like, your wife's missing, dude. What do you mean you need a few days to like help us out? Like these are the prime hours to find somebody. Like you can't just wait around on what you know. And so he's over there like, being a little weenie about it and so this was concerning because susan was missing and the more they did now the more likely they would find her and he just did not seem interested in that meanwhile the boys are being interviewed by a i don't know if she's a, a an expert for child psychology we're going to talk about how she goes about interviewing the kid and everything because people had a problem with it but apparently there's like certain protocol that people have to follow they can't be too i guess sweet or you know they can't be too tender towards the children they have to still keep it professional even though children need to be comforted and they need to feel comfortable in order to talk so there's a lot of back and forth on the comments when it comes to looking at the youtube videos of the interview where charlie is only four and he's telling her the story of what happened and it's like a lot of imagination type stuff um but we'll get into that later on so meanwhile, while Josh is getting interrogated at the police station, the uh, Charlie is talking to an expert at the South Valley Children's Justice Center. This causes a problem for Josh because Josh had said Susan stayed home last night, but Charlie said that Susan went with them. And so the detective gets word of this and he uses it, which I'm hoping it doesn't make Charlie a threat in Josh's mind at that point, because who knows when the seed gets planted that his kids are going to talk eventually. Mm -hmm. But... Um, he, he probably would have coached them on what to say. So I guess he was surprised that Charlie said like, yeah, no, mom came with. She just stayed where the crystals are. That is so, oh my God. So she came with us, but she didn't come home with us. And so basically that's where, what they took away from that day. So Josh, uh, he was like, 
no, she didn't. She didn't come with us. And Ellis is like, so do your kids lie? And he was like, sometimes. Oh my God. <laughs> so yeah, it's very, it's very hard. It's hard to, when, once the kids get involved with what happened to their mom, it's really tough to listen to. So forensics get to search the van again and the home. However, the difference was insane. He had cleaned it so well, but he hadn't thought that they would seize the van right when he, when he got there, I guess, or what? Or I don't know if he meant to throw this out before he got there or what. But instead of leaving it on the curb, there was a big bag of trash behind the passenger seat in the van. And um, inside was a few burned pieces of sheetrock that police believed were used as a base to put under whatever he burned with the torch that he had. That uh, good old torch that he bought back in November or something. Mm -hmm. The torched object was also in the bag, but it was melted beyond recognition. It was some kind of metal object that they couldn't tell what it was, but... If that's not a murder weapon that they that he tried to get rid of, I don't know what is. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, Jesus. So there had also been blankets in the van, and those had been washed. So they pretty much fucked up by not taking the van the first night and seizing the whole house and putting him in jail. Just like he was really trying. Because, okay, the backstory on Detective Ellis is that he took a long time to get hired because he was too soft. Mm -hmm. And he wanted this case to go all the way through. So all of this circumstantial evidence didn't mean anything to him because he was thinking in terms of court. Like, what's the court going to think? What's the court going to say? We need physical evidence. We need locations, numbers. Like, where did he go? Things like that. So he was really sitting on this one. Um, and it was his first big case because he had just joined this police department. So it's a lot of pressure um, it was just not the right situation, in my opinion, because there's a lot of blunders we're going to see happen with this case, and it's just very frustrating. From the home, they seized five computers and some external storage devices, and they also were planning on returning the van to Josh with a tracker on it to watch where he went. However, Josh, the little weasel, had snuck out before they gave it back. Mm -hmm. I just don't understand how they just let it slide like how are you not gonna find mm -hmm. anything to hold him or like to keep him you know right. what i mean and even and even right then when he left 10 minutes before they returned his keys they should have been like just make anything up and be like he's on the run we gotta go get him and arrest him because why else would he be on the run like just put anything into like act like a lawyer and like twist it to where it makes sense so that you can do it because he's obviously hiding something. He got out of there 10 minutes before they gave him his keys. Mm -hmm. And it just gets sketchier and sketchier. And yet they can't do anything about it. So mm -hmm. he dipped out. And they don't know where he is at this point. And in the house, guess what else? There were tiny drops of blood on the tile by the couch. So they might have cleaned the couch really well. But he, or I say they, who knows if it was just Josh or Steve and Josh or who knows. But there, there were drops on the floor, very tiny ones, um, like splatter marks on the ground, on the white tile, as well as a swipe mark of blood on the couch. So on the, the front of the couch, not on the seat of the couch, but like the front where you would rest your head or wherever. There was uh -huh. like a, uh, and it tested to be Susan's blood. That's okay. So how Seriously. is that not? 
I know. I was like, how is that not evidence? But the main thing is like they're looking for her. So they're really waiting on finding her body. And it just keeps going for months and months and months that they need a body. They need a body. So ugh, I hate this. The van didn't have any blood and the cadaver dogs didn't react to anything in the van. According to Maxwell, the circumstantial evidence was not enough to bring him in and they had to plan to watch him close to find out more and possibly get some physical evidence. The police also took Josh's cell phone, but Josh had taken out the SIM card before he gave it to them. Oh my God. So they had to contact T-Mobile to get whatever information they could on the activity of his phone, like where he went the last few days. Mm -hmm. And what they found was that the call he answered from Giovanna's son, Alex, around 3 p.m. on Monday, December 7th, the phone records showed that he was already in West Valley. Then, whenever he left Susan a voicemail, he was back in uh, where he had said he was, which is that Pony Express he was back on mm-hmm. that route. So he drove back out there to make that call so that he could cover his tracks and tr- cover his lies up. Mm-mm. He and did they find out um, what time he had called um, Susan? Because he called her to ask where she was, right? Or well, according to. I think he leaves her two voicemails and he's pretty much like, hey, I hope you made it to work. Okay, I'm on my way home. I totally messed up. It's Monday. Uh, I'm all over the place, so I'll see you soon or whatever. He's pretty much just played it off like, okay, I made a mistake today, but hopefully you're having a normal day from home. Mm-mm, mm-mm. But he had driven back out there to make that call. And it's already 3 p.m. at this time, so no wonder he gets there so late yeah. that evening. And we'll I'll uh, post the map on Instagram of where he was supposedly going, where he went, and also where... Charlie says they went because he might use different descriptive words, but those locations actually do exist. And if Charlie would have been taken seriously, maybe Susan's body would have been recovered mm-hmm. or something um, left from their campsite or something. Right. Because with all that evidence. stuff, he's bound to have dropped something. I'll post a picture of what they found in the van that night as well, because it's a bunch of camping stuff. He might have left something behind. Um But then also the kicker to that was his last call before his phone went dark was to Steve on Sunday around noon. So pancake day. Um, Of course. You know, before Susan went missing. So Steve was the last one. It was probably like, hey, are we still good to go tomorrow? Or, you know, it was probably that that kind of a call. Um, Which they do listen in on his conversations later on because they are really trying to catch him with anything. Um, But at this point, they hadn't, they obviously hadn't because she hadn't gone missing. There wasn't no reason to. So, um, but 10 minutes before they returned his van, he snuck out and it turns out that he rented a car and ended up in Tremonton, Utah, and claimed to just be driving around aimlessly. But for 18 hours, you've got to be kidding. Yeah, that's fucking sketchy as shit. And the boys, his sons were with Jennifer and she's like, where the hell is Josh? Like everybody's like, where's Josh? And he's just for 18 hours, just missing with a rental car. Oh yeah. And a new cell phone. Mm-mm. He's probably like, dad, we got to move the body. Charlie said, <laughs> Charlie said where the crystals are. So we got to move the body. And it's like a, anyways, it's not, it's not funny, but you know what I mean? Like he's like frantically still trying to do whatever he's doing. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so um, he had a new cell phone. He rented a car and added like 807 miles to it. 
And the boys were with Jennifer and he hadn't reached out to her. So everybody's like, what the fuck? And the police really needed to get the van back to him so that they could track him. But little did they know, he probably already did everything he had to in that rental car. Mm -hmm. So he admitted he didn't trust the police once they got a hold of him and they were like, what are you doing? Like, you need to come get your van from the police station. He was like, I don't trust you. Are you going to arrest me? I'm a suspect. I can feel it. Like, I don't I don't want to go back there. And uh, yeah, that was annoying. So he hated the media, but they were definitely waiting for him when he got back. And so all the pictures, he just looks miserable. He just looks like so sad and pathetic. So the search for Susan begins with people searching in Simpson Springs the next day, and they search the desert for any sign of her. And on December 14th, he was supposed to take some kind of lie detector test where I guess it like measures your voice and stuff too. And the police, and he didn't want to do that, so he didn't. And then the police had a warrant for a blood draw, and he showed up for that, but with a lawyer. Of course, <sighs> dramatic. So they came. They kept going back to his house for more computer stuff that they were finding, but he had encrypted most of it, so they couldn't even really see what was on it. And uh, while he was gone on his little venture, the police went to Susan's work and spoke to coworkers. They found Susan's paper trail that she left, and also they found her safety deposit box. And, and if that, if that's not uh, enough, plus the blood, are you kidding me? Yeah. I'm over it. I'm, see, I'm already mad. Anyway, mm-hmm. so Jennifer mentioned Steve Powell's obsession. This allowed for the police to have a reason to question him. However, Steve is in Washington, remember? So they had the Washington police in on the investigation to speak to Steve. Either that or they had someone go out there, which I doubt. I feel like they just kind of shared information between the departments. Mm-hmm. While he had no problem talking, he gave them every detail of their forbidden relationship that he said Josh was actually fine with when he found out. What the fuck? And, uh, yeah. He claimed Susan was in love with him, and it was just like a little game they had between the two of them. Meanwhile, the search continued with all the friends around Josh who heard him discuss how perfect minds were for hiding a body. They, uh, they searched... It was a secret part of the search of the investigation. So they went to the mines with cameras and uh, looked for any sign that there were, I guess, that there was a body or some something thrown down, but they couldn't find anything. No sign of Susan. Mm-mm. They tell Steve they want to look for Susan at his home and he gets emotional saying he wishes she was there. Oh my God. Yeah. Nice and safe and sound with her, the love of her life, Steve Powell. Jennifer Powell wore a wire in January of 2010, a month after Susan had been missing, and she hoped that she could get Josh to reveal something about what happened to her. That was something, my goodness. I would not have been able to contain myself. Yeah. And you can listen to it on on the Cold Podcast. I didn't want to take a bunch of his his stuff, but you can head over to the Cold Podcast and listen to her she had to like push him into the bathroom because Steve and Josh were like, she had to go up to Washington. First of all, like that's a nightmare for her because she hates all of that, that part of the family and it's very uncomfortable, but she's doing this for Susan. She contacts Maxwell Ellis and is like, I want in on the case, you know, put a wire on me and I will go in there and try to get a confession or any kind of information. And it was super uncomfortable. And she finally just pushed Josh into the bathroom and was like, where is she? I know you know where she is. And then Steve figures out what's going on and he 
He's like, you don't know what you're talking about. You, you have problems with reality and starts gaslighting her. And then is like, you need to get out of here right now. You've overstayed your welcome. And so her and her husband get in the car and Jennifer breaks down crying. And she's like, he, he killed her. She just knew right away from the moment they walked into that house that was empty that something happened to Susan. Yep. She just felt it. Mm-hmm. So and then once and once she was alone with Josh in that room and she could see his face without him saying anything, she just knew it was true. So it really broke her. All the vague answers and cleaning concerned Jennifer, but little did she know his actions would only get more suspicious from here. See, what happened was Josh had moved in with his father, Steve Powell, 12 days after Susan's disappearance. But it's like, what if she came home or what if she was kidnapped and like, like you needed to be home in case she came home? But no. He left 12 days after she disappeared, bringing the boys with him, of course. And uh, he called Debbie and said they wouldn't be using her services any longer. I believe they, maybe it was Michael or Steve that called Debbie and it was the night of the vigil. So it might've been a little bit after he moved, but in other words, they hadn't been to the daycare since before Susan went missing. And uh, so they let her know, you know, we're not going to need your services anymore. And he left on December 19th, only coming back to pack up. They couldn't stop him from leaving the state, but luckily the Washington PD would be involved later on. And he started on the right foot by returning to the church, gaining sympathy from um, the nice Mormon people. And he said that, yeah, he's like, we don't have any money. You know, my wife's missing. The boys don't have their mother. So they kind of all took, like, as he did before, any community that can accept him, take him in, and he can gain something from He's doing that again. He's abusing the church for this in this case. And remember all of that fancy paperwork Josh was putting together with Susan before? Well, he had power of attorney, and around this time, he requested to withdraw money from Susan's retirement fund before he moved to Washington with his dad. Of course. course. (sighs) So he's, uh, yeah, on Susan's dime still, even after she's gone, rest Mm -hmm. in peace. He and Steve were joking around, um, and I wonder if that was part of their strategy. Like, hey, if we if we use our sense of humor, they're going to think like, oh, we know she's alive. So that's the only reason why we're okay joking about it. I'm not sure if that's what they were thinking or what, but they would make jokes with each other. And when he and his brother were packing up the house, he made a joke to one of the neighbors that was helping. It was this woman. And he was like, I just packed up Susan's head in the trunk. Oh, my God. And when she... Oh, I would freaking punch him. And when he didn't, when she didn't react, he repeated it and was like, oh, come on. It's funny. It's a joke. Ugh. That's, oh my God. I would instantly have called the cops. I know. Seriously. How annoying. And then Chuck, Susan's dad, well, both are her parents, actually. They were in contact with Jennifer Graves constantly because obviously they're both worried about, they're all worried about Susan and everything. And so they asked if Jennifer would go over there and get some of the things that belonged to Susan that they wanted, like something from her graduation, some kind of bench that had like a storage in it that she really loved, and then her journals. But when she went to grab those, they noticed that she wasn't taking them to the U-Haul. And uh, Michael stepped in and was like, hey, you can't take those. And she was like, but I mean, they're Susan's. What are you going to do with them? And no, they just he took them away from her and gave them to Steve. Of course. Josh had given specific instruction not to let them take anything of Susan's. So he refused to let her take them and then just turn them over to Steve Powell. So they are now 
in his possession, which will come back around later. A Sunday school teacher around this time was teaching Charlie and Brayden, spoke to the detective, and she told them that Brayden said something weird. And she was like, well, Brayden was misbehaving. And I said, if he didn't behave, that I would have to tell his mommy and daddy. And Brayden said, my mommy's dead. <sighs> mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Right. And Brayden's the little one. So he, if he's, um, if it's the year after that, so they're already in Washington, it's Sunday school time, whatever. So it's January, February. He's three by this time. So he knows probably how to say a little bit of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what he said to her. I don't know what the talking age is for children. Sorry. I don't know. They start talking before what age, but anyway, back to the pancakes real quick. When Brayden took a nap with Susan, did he eat what Susan ate? Were they both sleepy? Maybe he sedated everybody a little bit. Except for Giovanna. Oh, maybe. So that the night was a little bit foggy, just enough for him to manipulate everybody and everything falls into place without any trouble, you know? Yeah. Or he just did, he just drugged the little one because the little one might not have been as cooperative, I guess, as the older one. Yeah, you're right. Especially if he's so attached to Susan. Yeah. Oh, well, in August of 2011, so it's now like two years later, Steve brought Susan's journals and read passages on national TV, and he claimed that she was in love with him and said Josh was okay with that, like I had mentioned before. So he's still singing the same tune, but this time he's using her journals, and that really upsets her parents because he's not even supposed to have those. Josh said Susan was unstable and probably ran off with a man, so this is around that time when they're just slandering her. And um, at this point, the, the PD is trying to get a reaction out of both Steve and Josh. So they like staged a, a honk and what's that called? Where it's like a drive and honk or something where honk if this or honk if that. And they, they set it up. For those were, I didn't know those had a title. <laughs> right. I, I know. Right. Neither did I. But uh, they staged one of those outside of a grocery store where Steve and Josh would shop. And that pissed them off. They just went at Mr. Chuck like he was Satan himself and they just attacked him for no reason it, with their words. They didn't get physical or anything, but it was uh, they were pretty much just bad mouthing Susan and it was just a bad time. So they emphasized that Susan was rep- uh, repressed from her Mormon beliefs and that she was actually just a hypersexual person Mm-mm. who just had a lot of pent up sexual energy in that uh, she just ran off because that's what that's what happens when that happens. I don't know. <laughs> then Josh blamed her parents for putting pressure on her and said that she buckled under that pressure and ran away. So they're just really turning the tides on everything that they hate. Like, I don't know. He then blamed the bad image of him on the press and Jennifer bit back stating that it was the Powells that had a history of mental illness and Susan never gave any signs of being unstable. And so remember how he encrypted his stuff? He also used a program called Eraser where it erased files without a trace. So they could tell that that's what he did. Mm -hmm. Um, But they did find a little bit of something on Sunday, December 6th, the day before. So that Sunday that he made pancakes. He, they found a search for Illy, Nevada with maps being searched and the weather being searched and motels. And that town was an old mining town. So they considered oh. that maybe that's where 
that might have been where he took her. Yeah. But then they calculated it out and they were like, it seems too far for him to travel and come back. But I mean, I don't know. They they should have just searched everywhere they could have. Mm-hmm. Um, another big thing that people emphasize when they're talking about where to search and do what is how lazy Josh was, which, I mean, if he had his brother and his father's help, fine. But if it was just him himself, he was not a very physically active person. One of the neighbors um, had to help him build the deck and helped him in the basement fix a few things in their house. And he recalled, he's interviewed in the Cold Podcast as well, so you will find that over there. He talks about how Josh could barely lift anything and he would just mostly stand around and give orders. And he was supposed to be doing this guy a favor and helping him and he's just pretty much working for him. It's so embarrassing. Mm-hmm. He was like, my four-year-old daughter could lift more than Josh Powell. Like, he hated this guy. <laughs> That's what I love about the cold podcast is everyone who's interviewed just hates him. Like, they they have specific things that he did. And the thing about Josh is, like, he never faked it or tried to put his, you know, best self forward for people to see. It was always just how he was. He was lazy. He was arrogant and narcissistic. He would constantly just, like, pretty much show off how he was such a know-it-all and but he was lazy and he wouldn't do anything. So when it came to disposing of the body, they checked mines that would have been easy for him to lift on his own. Mm -hmm. Considering, I guess the boys at this point hadn't mentioned if they saw their grandpa that night or not, which granted it might've been while they were sleeping. It was very late. Who knows? But they think that he might've disposed of the body himself, but I'm thinking he definitely got help because he was just not the kind of person to do the heavy lifting. Speaking of the boys, I'll go ahead and, talk about that charlie was the older of the two and he was interviewed the day that josh was uh interviewed or should i say the day after susan went missing so the eighth and i think that one was a a little bit shorter of an interview but he's interviewed again in march and some of his stuff is still the same yet some things are a little bit like fantasy oriented so he talks about like getting on an airplane and going where the dinosaurs are and where the dinosaur bones are and the crystals and this and that but these are just you know this is just child's you know children language a child's kind of way of talking and they should have probably taken that stuff more seriously and applied it where it applied mm-hmm. so people in the comments are pretty much like people on reddit and they're getting together talking about how there was a dinosaur national park nearby that because whenever the interview gets analyzed by the experts and by the police they're like oh he's just telling stories but in reality it could have been something he was actually describing yeah (sighs) it's just it's tough let me find that part that's super chilling and your brother did you sleep over there yeah Tell me what you did with um, your dad while you were camping. Um, Anything fun? Yeah. Um, while well, I was camping, um, I saw some flowers that didn't look pretty. You didn't? Yeah. You saw some flowers that didn't look pretty? Yeah. Oh. There no pretty flowers on dinosaur National Park City. Oh. So you uh, you went camping with your mom, your dad, your little brother, and you had s'mores? Yeah. Was that fun? Yeah. Yeah? Um, no Mommy what? and daddy and little brother have fun too? Yeah. Um, you know what? What? Um, the 
this one, little bit of pretty flowers at Dinosaur National Park City. There's a little bit of pretty flowers at Dinosaur National Park City? Yeah. Okay. Um, when you were camping, tell me some of the things you and your, your mom and dad and brother did. Um, my mom and dad and my brother did. Um, my mom and dad and my brother did. Um, they put up a fire. And then my little brother. It built a fire? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. How did you guys get to where you were camping? Um, we got in the airplane and the airplane went to Dinosaur National Park. Oh. You went to an airplane yesterday? Yeah, and our airplane brings us to Dinosaur National Park. Okay. So when you guys made snow the s'mores last night. Okay, so Charlie, when you guys came home from camping, who came home with you? My dad. And? And my mom stayed at Dinosaur National Park. Your mom stayed there? Yeah. How do you know your mom stayed? Because I was coming. Because you were coming? Yeah. So your mom stayed at the park? Yeah. Where did she stay at the park? Um, she, Do you know where? She stayed at the National Park. Do you know where at the park? No? No. She, my mom stayed where a crystal are. Where what are? Where crystals are. The crystals? Yeah. Crystals? Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Crystals? Yeah. Your mom stayed where the crystals are? Yeah. Is that what you said? Yeah. Okay. Crystals, crystals are of things that grow in rocks that aren't colorful. Okay. So... Okay, so basically it keeps going. There's the whole thing on YouTube to see. I'll probably cut some of that out, but she, okay, the big thing that people are complaining about in the comments is that he had said he's hungry and remember how Josh doesn't really feed them. Oh, yeah. And he's having trouble focusing and stuff, but I mean, he's a kid, so he's kind of like squirming around and he has his jacket on and his shoes and people in the comments were like, you know, maybe you should make him more comfortable so that he can focus and he can actually like pay attention to what you're saying without being so hungry and tired and stuff. And this interview took place at 12, 14 p.m. or, you know, 3 p.m. ish on December 8th of 2009 so it's very fresh in his brain where he went what they did and the common thing that they would do is open geodes so when he says crystals like he knows what he's talking about they just right. kind of have to put things together i'm not sure if there are like so many places that like what he's describing or they couldn't narrow it down but the um dave collie who did the the cold podcast breaks it down on one of his videos and is like well 
he talked about a beach at one point and they went to a pond pretty often where Susan worked. And then they also liked to watch the airplanes take off from the airport. So he's naming things that he knows. He's not just completely making things up out of nowhere. So, so they could have used more with what he said, but when he said that she stayed where the crystals are, I was like, Hmm. Because he's saying he knows what he's saying, yeah, and whenever pretty... he says that, um, yeah, exactly. But also, what I'm just not realizing too is if they did ever take like a private plane or something, like if Steve, okay, say like they left all together, but then Josh and Susan stayed somewhere else while Steve took the boys somewhere. I would think he would mention Steve or anyone else involved that night. But he's talking about getting on an airplane and like going somewhere. So I don't know. Um, I don't know how much of the actual murder they witnessed. And once again, the blood at the house, we don't know if she was killed there, if she was just knocked out or what happened. But all we know is like she went with them. And there's more that he says. He even draws a, a picture at one point where there's a woman in the trunk and he's like, mommy's in the trunk. Like, just so nonchalant. And Josh can feel the police inching closer to him with what the kids are saying and with what their teachers and um, other parents are saying that the kids are, how they're acting. Brayden, the, the little one, is mostly very timid and wants to be held constantly. So I'm assuming he might have seen more than what Charlie did or else Charlie would be singing like a canary. Yeah. So it's just very heartbreaking and frustrating. And so with everything that they're finding, and even now they're still uncovering things like, um, I'll go ahead and talk about this now, but at one point in the van, he did go somewhere suspicious in it and he drove so far. Um, Let's see. And whenever they pulled up the, so long after everyone's gone that they could have asked, which we will get into next time. And it's going to be the saddest part of the episode because there's no solution. There's no ending. There's no conclusion. It's just all open-ended sadness, just open wounds everywhere. So next episode's not going to be fun, but they tracked the data on Josh Powell's movements after um, he took the van because he ended up getting the van after all. And it turns out that he went to a dumpster that was, like, miles away. It was like, okay, so they reconfigured information from the minivan's tracking device twice, and they were able to line it up with Google Earth and pinpoint where exactly the minivan went on um, December 10th, 2009. So he, he went somewhere again after he had already rented that car and did something, so... It's called geofencing, apparently, and you can set boundaries. So if it crosses one of those boundaries, it'll send you an alert. And the findings, Mm -hmm. yeah, oh my gosh. Okay, so the data revealed Powell's minivan traveled to an apartment complex near 7800 South and UT 111 on December 14th, 2009. This is when he took the um, minivan, and it was a week after Susan Powell was reported missing. The location where the van stopped included an easily accessible dumpster. Rogers believes Josh Powell was getting rid of critical evidence. So he was like, oh, one last thing. Let me drive miles and miles away to an apartment complex with a free dumpster and just get rid of it real quick. Uh, They said 
My guess would be that Powell had items that he believed contained DNA or other forensic evidence, and he's getting rid of them. By this time, police had already searched the Powell family home on Sarah's Circle and their minivan twice, and there were more dumpster drops. The stop at Serengeti Springs Apartments on December 14, 2009 was far from the only activity revealed by the tracker data. At 3.02 p.m. on Wednesday, December 16, 2009, the minivan again stopped at a dumpster, this time at Flat Iron Mesa Park in Sandy, about a half-hour drive in normal conditions. It stayed there for two minutes. Next, the van headed north toward Murray. It circled the dumpster at a Walgreens parking lot near 4500 South and 900 East, but did not stop. Rogers believes Powell was looking for dumpsters that were easy to access and would not attract attention. What the fuck? So he kept driving. Yeah, he kept driving. The tracker, the tracker, the tracker data shows the minivan continued to a church parking lot near 500 South Emory Street. Again, it cruised by but did not stop. Rogers thinks that this was all part of Powell's plan. So he would just kind of go by them, maybe maybe see if there was any kind of cameras, um, CC cameras or things like that. Next, the minivan traveled to Poplar Grove Park near 700 South Emory Street, stopping for 12 minutes. Here, the park did not feature a dumpster, but a number of easily accessible trash cans at any given time. On Friday, December 18, 2009, the minivan made a late-night stop at a pair of dumpsters in a strip mall parking lot near 3500 South and 5600 West. After a brief stop there, the tracker shows it's headed north, then flipped a U-turn and returned to the same dumpster. There's no other reason for him to be hitting those dumpsters. There's no reason for him to be going to those locations very far from his residence. He was getting rid of evidence, no question. Mm -hmm. So what did the police know? The same night, the minivan headed north, leaving Utah behind. It begs the question, how do you know that when they're running search warrants and yeah, why isn't someone following you around and doing dumpster dives after you've been there? In fact, he points out police wouldn't have needed a warrant to inspect the dumpsters visited. If you suspect that he's going to all these dumpsters and you see all these tracking things, the next thought should be we need to find out what he's throwing in there. You don't even need search warrants. Because, yeah. I mean, it, it is a public it's a public dumpster, so they should have just seen where he was going and gone there. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's unclear whether the West Valley City Police knew about all the dumpster stops, but Collie could not find any mention of them in any of the case files he obtained for Cole. So then it's like, why did they even put the tracker on the freaking van? Yeah, what the fuck was the point of that then? Absolutely. So Cold provided the West Valley City Police with Collie's findings and requested comment. So it's like this, I'm not taking away, this guy's a, a radio station host. He's this awesome, awesome podcast host. And he's doing more than the investigative team. Like, come on. Because mm-hmm. um, Collie, Dave Collie is the one who discovered where he was going and everything and then took that to the police. And it's like, shouldn't have the police known this already? Isn't that what happened? Uh, Kristen Smart. Oh, oh yeah, was, that one, that they missed a few opportunities there too. But there was a guy that was doing a podcast on her and he solved what happened. <gasps> I have to hear about that. Because yeah. yeah, you're right. That's why it's all big in the news right now with everything mm-hmm. about the, the concrete in the backyard and yeah. stuff. That guy that oh, was doing Lord. the podcast did a bunch of digging and he ended up solving what happened. That or, is guess, a dream. It was kind of already known, I guess. It just wasn't like proven, but now they he got something on him. So yeah. Mm. But anyways, mm-hmm. continue. Well, that's pretty much it. I mean, this is 
immediately following her disappearance. It's a it's pretty big in the media, but of course Josh is staying out of the limelight. It's mostly her parents and her sister-in-law speaking for her up until Josh and his dad put up a website pretty much saying that Susan ran off with someone else who went missing around the same time. Ah, uh, yes. So next time we're going to get into that as well as the crimes, times, and deaths of the Powell family, including the very sad and devastating murders of the two boys and the horrible situation that happened with the caseworker, which, by the way, they are seeking some justice for all of that happening because it was negligence, not the caseworker's fault, simply negligence for not monitoring Josh more closely and even allowing him to see his children having been under such a microscope for making his wife go missing. So Mm -hmm. it was just completely avoidable and a lot of detail. So I didn't want to cram that in with all the stuff we found out with Susan going missing, all the forensics and everything. So I kept that separate. Next time it's going to be very sad, but hopefully the last episode I'll have to cover on this case. It's all that's been on my mind. It's it's just, ugh, it just pisses me off mostly, but... You know, what can you do? Yeah. Hopefully someone else, uh, I mean, if Dave Colley can find all this information and add to the evidence pile, maybe someone else can eventually find out where Susan ended up uh, so that this could finally be closed. I mean, so far, what do you think happened with everything? I think, I don't know. There's like several things that I think could have happened. Um and I do think that <clears throat> it involves uh, Josh's brother. And I don't know. I don't think the dad did anything, but I think the dad definitely helped. And I think they dumped her in some mine shaft somewhere. That's what I think, too. I think, if anything, they had they maybe had to move her once, but... I definitely think the brother knows something or did something. And Steve definitely had his hand in on whatever they did as well. Mm-hmm. Cause we didn't even cover this yet because at this point in time, it's only like um, two years after she's gone missing where we stopped, but they eventually find that Michael Powell had a car that he was trying to get rid of and they didn't, they didn't get to search it in time, but mm-hmm. they find stuff in there that would have, um, insinuated that he helped dispose of her body. So next time I'll definitely cover that because it's all tied together and it's just a mess and yeah. it's just horrible. But yeah, for sure I'm ready to be to move on with to move on past this because it's just I can't. Thank you guys for listening. Keep spreading the word. Uh, I want to know what you guys think because this is a very interesting case. It's very fascinating. There's a lot of moving parts. So if you have any ideas or I guess, theories on what might have happened, how this might have happened, you guys can hop over to the Instagram at Gimme the Creeps, G-I-M-M-E, The Creeps, or on Twitter, uh, shoot us a question, shoot us a DM, tell us what you think. We would love to know. Mm -hmm. And thank you guys for listening. So did we give you the creeps?